So what I wanted to ask, or we discussed earlier on, was how did you start your career in editing and whether editing was your first passion? And no, not at all, no. Um, I, I sort of... I was a film student, but the, the one thing I didn't do was, was uh, editing. I, I, I sort of thought I might be interested in it, but in those days, in the late 60s, it was kind of hard to allow somebody, you know, for directors to let you muck about with their film. They, they wanted to do it themselves. And so I came through sound editing and being a sound recordist, and um, that's how I started, and a, a, a sort of a fluke uh, and needing a job desperately meant that I ended up one day cutting a, a, a small BFI pilot film for somebody who was applying to make a bigger film. And that went pretty well. And I started to realize that um, the glamorous jobs that we knew, which were to be directors or cameramen, that there was this other sort of job where you could have an enormous amount of power quietly in the background and that's <laughs> and beat people up in another way um, and that's how I got interested in, in putting films together but I it's it's a sort of job where um, it's very hard to train people to be editors you sort of tr it's trial and error and experience I guess and in my case a lot of lying about how much I knew when I didn't know anything <laughs> blagging my way through and pretending that I knew a lot um, I, you know, I wasn't trained at all in that respect, and um, I sort of bluffed my way through, basically, until people started to employ me more regularly. And you were saying that um, at one point, uh, when I was reading your interview with uh, Fine Cuts, that you um, suddenly find yourself with two assistants, having worked on... All the films on your oh, own. Oh yes, first. that was a nightmare. That was, <laughs> that was a nightmare. I, 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 um, I had on my first sort of industrial job, which again I, I had so many interviews for that film that the, the people that were producing the film, I think sent the, the the cleaning lady in to interview me as well. Actually, mm -hmm. I, I, it went on for <laughs> weeks, and then I thought, well, I'm never going to get this job. And then one day I was offered it, but I hadn't actually worked an, on a feature film as an assistant editor. I'd just done these little BFI films, Arts Council films. And so I found myself with my first sort of industrial film with highly experienced um, crew around me who'd just come back from um, making Steven Spielberg films or something. So I, so I knew nothing and they, they, they were rather resentful of me being relatively young. And so I didn't really know how the job broke down in terms of seniority because I was used to doing all the jobs myself and in those days we used to you know actually handle film and cut, cut film and uh, so when I wasn't in the toilet weeping which was there was an awful lot of that going on in that one because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing and they, they were beating me up about my inexperience um, it was very uncomfortable mm. um, but fortunately for me they made one terrible mistake one day in a screening and uh, I, I never had any trouble after that. <laughs> Great. Yeah. They left a piece of, um, I don't know if you, any of you cut actual film, but in yeah. those days we used to screen, screen the print, you know, with sellotape joins. But if the film was ready for dubbing, they used to copy it into black and white. And um, there was a, they used to put the trims on the end of the cuts in order to have a bit more in the, in the dupe than, than, than we... we we wanted a screen. And this was a rather important screening for the producers and and the 
there was a kiss, rather badly done, I thought. But anyway, I cut it pretty quickly, and the screening, the, the kiss went through, and then, then suddenly it was sort of going on. And I thought, I'm sure I was cut this shot earlier than that. And it went on and on. The sound was there as well. And then the clapperboard came in upside down, <laughs> and, and the cast was laughing. They put the whole thing in there. It was right bang in the middle of the movie. And suddenly <laughs> there was a very... <laughs> the producer was somebody who looked rather like Billy Bunter. I don't know if you know Billy Bunter, but he had these big round glasses. And he was sitting next to me, but... I suddenly I looked down and this man's face was sort of in my lap hissing at me saying this must never happen again so I thought well I'm fired that's it you know but mm-hmm. anyway I got away with it okay. so I went away and beat up these assistants because they, they should have taken the stuff back out again <laughs> um, the next question I wanted to ask was more about the process of editing and what informs your decisions when you're actually editing or what you, or, and, and if you see a change over the years about what you've brought in with you? Uh, well, obviously, I've lived through the era of, of, as we talked about a second ago, of actually physically handling roles of film, um, which seems prehistoric now um, that we did that. But it, it was different in many, many ways. I mean, um, you really did feel if you'd cut a sort of reel that, that you'd had a sort of physical involvement with, with sticking it together, literally. And um, that gave one a lot of pleasure, actually, mm-hmm. to, to literally carve this thing out of loads of stuff. But the, the thinking which goes into your choices and so on is the same. But as you all know, probably because you're very familiar with, with the current technology, you can think very fast with, uh, with the machines now. And that wasn't the case but the process of choosing material and having an opinion or, or making selections on behalf of a director, because I start work when the film is being shot, which is a very good time for me because I have to feed back information on a daily basis of technically whether everything's okay, of what we've got, and whether I think I've got the material I need to make the scenes work. So it's stressful in that way because you've got to put your hand up while everybody's on board and the cast and so there's a sort of pressure on a daily basis of clearing the material behind you for the opportunities of editing it and creating the film you, you want to make for your employers or and the directors so that choice process is hasn't changed mm. it's just that you can achieve a lot more quickly now um, the difference for me was when we had film when we had to construct scenes with film you had to be very sure about each maneuver that you made because it just took you twice as long so for example we would screen rushes from a previous day shooting in the evening and i would be cutting it the next day to make a sketch of of that scene and clearing it as it were for technical reasons or whatever creative reasons or performances and I had to sort of think very carefully about the maneuvers I was going to make so I on, on the work going to work in the morning I think well you know this scene what well, how am I going to do this and well I'll start with that shot then I'll do that and that will and I would plan it in my head on the bus or uh, now you can go in without a thought in your head and, and just kind of think think freely because it's so quick and also if you want to keep that you can just say well oh, I don't know that's not too good keep that version carry on do another one so you don't have to prepare 
in the same way or be so fastidious about what was screened mm-hmm. the, the, and, and deal with your responses because you've got much more time to reassess your responses. Because mm-hmm. before we used to sit in a cinema like this and see the previous day's work and I'd have to kind of memorise it in one go. And mm-hmm. That was tough if you got uh, upwards of an hour or two hours of material a day to cut down to three minutes. or So... Um, yeah, you'd have to go for a lie down. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you're choosing material, I mean, obviously the director would say, well, I like that performance and that performance. So do, do you get notes like that or do you you're just give <clears throat> free reign and then they have a look at it? I mean, I suppose now you're working with people that you know quite well. So. Yeah, I think certainly in my experience, no directors have ever sat with me, say, watching the previous day's work and said, I want you to use this, this and this. It just hasn't happened. They're usually very, very busy mm-hmm. shooting. They're much more concerned about the next day's shooting than they are about that day's cutting because the cutting, something's going to go on and, and you know, their time will come for that. So why I said earlier it's a very important time for me is because um, everybody leaves you alone. They don't really know what we get up to. They're too worried about whether the weather's going to be bad the next day. So you've got this nice period where you, it's very intense. You've got to tick everything off, but you can go off and do your own thing. And... And you can choose the material you want or interpret the material in the way in which you think mm-hmm. fit. And I've been lucky to work with people who, you know, trusted me or, or employed me because they knew my sensibilities, perhaps. And so you can muck about. Their, their turn will come as well where they, they're going, you have to present things and they will either hate it or fire you, <laughs> whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, generally... I could push things quite a long way and, and produce a, a draft of the film pretty quickly after they finish shooting. Mm-hmm. That's what we're asked to do. We have about a week to kind of do a first draft, you know. So you've got to work very hard while it's being shot. And at what point do you get involved in the filmmaking process? Uh, I get, you know, I have to decide whether I'm going to take a project on. Um, so I get sent a script maybe as much as a year or longer before it's made perhaps and if you're free and it works out but I will probably have read two or three versions of the script before we actually start shooting so I make a decision on that basis you know who it is where it is do I like do I like this film do I want to make this film because you know this was an this was an exceptional film where everything that could go wrong did um, and we had to kind of figure out whether we wanted to go on making the film at all uh, after Heath's de- death but um, normally, under normal circumstances, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I would, I would make a decision based on the script. Do I like, mm-hmm. do I want to live with this every day of my life and get out of bed every day for a year, perhaps, mm-hmm. making this film? Because <laughs> we all have days where you think, this is crazy, why, mm-hmm. why am I doing this? And did you, you were talking earlier on about sending notes back to the to the directors while they're writing the script so do you get involved well they they they, you know because they're friends they will ask me you know have we got editorial problems with this with this screenplay do you think and because i see editing cutting a film as a as the next extension of the writing process given the material you've you've got and remember we're talking on a daily basis two or three times a day as we, as it's being shot and I'm producing little sections and we're discussing how that works and so the writing the screenplay writing suddenly then is me building a film which is writing with the images and the sounds in the same way so I think of it as a, as a natural process from from there and um, a continuation so 
I like to do an awful lot of work on the screenplay before we start so that I can understand the material that's coming in because it comes in in the most crazy order as we you know we all know about filmmaking being um upside down and backwards so I, I feel i've got to arm myself to recognize oh hold on day one i'm you know i mean I've literally had day one shooting as the end scene of a movie mm. so you're trying to think because of time and money what am i going to be feeling by the time i get there i've got to make an informed guess in the use of my own time because you've never got enough time mm-hmm to try and get a sketch of that scene so that when the scene that comes in front of it finally arrives, which might be months later, that you haven't got to completely rework the one you've already made. It's a constant sort of battle with, with, with time and, and efficiency, and one's own efficiency, you know. Mm-hmm. Do I want to spend time on that or not? I, the days go very quickly. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, of, of getting very, very involved in the script. Other pe- I have other friends who edit films who say, well, I know roughly what it is, and then chuck it away. They just want to see the rushes come in and, and make their own. But I need a criteria, or I, I need a film that I, I can sort of partially see in my head in order to start the process of choice. And if I get it wrong, that's fine. Somebody will beat me up for it. But I've got to make hundreds of choices every day and I need to have a sort of a guideline in my head. I think it should be this, or I think it should be that. And then if I switch camps halfway through, that's fair enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Hopefully they won't notice, or <laughs> I'll just have to back another horse on the way. Um, no, the latest sort of films that have been made these days, they all kind of have some kind of form of visual effects. I mean, this yeah. was a particularly laden one. Yeah. Um, how does it, you know, what is it like for an editor? Because you start, obviously, with smaller films. And yep. the was just like 35 mil celluloid and yep. everything. And now a lot mil. of the stuff, even normal films that have backgrounds and added on. Well, it's, yeah. um, it's a craft which I can't say I have got used to um, at all because the process... In this case, the, the backgrounds that we put in were environments, largely. They weren't really interactive things. And Terry being Terry Gilliam is a master of all the disciplines, including editing himself. And he obviously can draw. So if, for example, the whole business of, say, that uh, the, a river turning into a snake we would have to supply the foreground pieces that we shot, in this case in Canada, for that and time out those shots and imagine what was going to go in and then slowly you get crude versions, which you can adjust a little bit. But generally, you're committing bits of film which you have only a tiny percentage of the visual information that's going to be there and you've got to commit it to length, to frames, because each frame costs X thousand pounds. To make, mm-hmm. so you've got to get a very close um, guess, and that's terrifying. And uh, I did one of the the Harry Potter, the Harry Potter films, films yeah. and, and there was one scene in that where I blocked it all out, and literally nine months later, because I was cutting the film for a year and a half, so and when I saw finally what had got into it, I thought I've got this all wrong, you know, and it's too late to go back. Mm-hmm. So. You know, having been sick in the toilet for a bit, <laughs> I then tried to figure out how I was going to wriggle out of this because we couldn't. 
there was no way out of it. And I, I sort of worked out a way of, of doing it mm-hmm. where I'd undervalued all the shots. I mean, I'd got them all hopelessly wrong. Undervalued because you thought well, they needed to be longer. Well, I don't know. Yeah, there was simple stuff. You know, it was a spider crawling up a, a mm-hmm. one of the school children's arm or something, and you try and figure that out and you cut it, and then suddenly you see this thing, and it's it's much more interesting than you ever imagined, and it has a much more interesting value, and you think, wow, you know, I needed to linger on that shot longer for all the information, and um, I couldn't do that because. That was it. The frames were made, and it's too late to go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they won't do it. So, so as it is, sleepless now, nights. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it was scary actually. In that case, I actually it was quite interesting because I'd put reaction shots in between, and I figured out that it, well, as soon as I took out all the reaction shots, there seemed to be a continuity in the action which I'd undervalued, and then it actually started to play quite well. But it wasn't until it was completely done that I admitted mm-hmm. that I'd got it wrong. So there's a complete art to it, I guess, too. Yeah, I mean, what it's... people needs to get used to it to a certain extent. Well, what happens sort of professionally is that... And, and I'm, I'm of an old school in this, in this game, but you're always reducing things. People's patience over the years is, is, is getting less. And, um, you know, things are being cut more and more up because it's easy to press a button. It's actually harder now to decide when not to cut things and when to make tension, uh, uh, there'd be tension in, in, in the filmmaking through deliberately getting the audience to think something's going to happen or unconsciously the cut's going to come and then not doing it. That's a much more difficult process now mm-hmm. uh, because people seem to admire editing when it's all chopped up. Oh, they, the guy's done a lot of work. Isn't that flashy? <laughs> and you think, well, hold on, I, I don't know what's being said here. I don't know what the value is being said. It, it's not always appropriate. Sometimes it is, but... And so... The, the valuing of the shots, which is what we sort of instinctively do, is you're being asked to reduce everything so that each shot fulfills its purpose and not a frame more, and then you go on to the next one. And if you're doing a visual effects thing and, and you haven't got the stuff there for months on end, there'll be a great deal of pressure from the director to say, well, this sequence is too slow. You know, you've got to, you've mm. got to speed it up. You've got to take half the stuff out. And then you do, and then you put in all the visual effects and it's all wrong. So you've got to be very strong to say, no, just bide your time, wait until we've got all the stuff in there. And um, I find it very difficult. Mm. So the sequences which aren't, uh, don't have any visual effects in them at all are a lot easier because what you see is what you've got. Yeah, you've got to. And you haven't got to wait six months to find out what the image is. I was going to, well, I'm going to move on to Dr. Parnassus now because there's a lot to Uh-oh, be said. Yeah. Uh, trouble. People are going to start throwing yeah. things at it. Uh, well, obviously, I would like to. We would like to know about what happened at the point of it. Dish the dirt. Apart, yeah. No, apart from, uh, I was reading that at some point you was. They were talking about um, having one other actor yeah. do one switch. Yeah. At what point did he get to three? <coughs> and how did you dig yourself? You and Terry did you yeah. dig yourself out of the of the problem. Well, I. I I don't know if this is interesting to you, but um, this was an extraordinary experience to have such a wonderful actor who was part of a family very unexpectedly die uh, four weeks into shooting. So the way this film was financed was, was, was partly in the UK and partly in Canada. And the 
all the stuff that you saw, which was the imagined world, was planned for to be shot in Vancouver um, against blue screen, which is odd because we were in this rather beautiful city in, in, in the west of Canada, but in a studio with just plain blue or green backgrounds. And that was a financial con consideration that money had to be spent, uh, a proportion of money in each country. And so all the blue screen stuff was destined to go there. So we finished shooting in London after four weeks, which was all Blackfriars Bridge and uh, you know all the locations you'll recognize. And we were due to stop shooting for a week while we all went to Canada and got set up. And Heath's death was in the middle of that week period. And so, uh, you know, I we basically thought the film would collapse immediately, that that was the end of it, because we didn't have a whole film at all. And we, it became apparent that the insurance films are, are, are if you like insured to complete for for a percentage of the budget i'm not sure what it is it's something like 10 or 20 mm percent -hmm. it's quite high i think so i don't know what the budget for the film this film was but say it was 30 million dollars or something so 10 percent of that would be spent as an insurance for against eventualities of this nature but my understanding was that Heath's death was going to cost the insurance company $15 million not to have a product at the end of it. So we all felt that was the end and, you know, they were going to cough up. And we then felt very uncomfortable that his work was not going to get preserved. So there were two or three choices. One was to abandon the film, which became clear within about a week that we weren't going to be able to do that. Or, um, if my understanding of it is correct, uh, continue in some form for less than $15 million <laughs> to complete it so that the, the insurance company would pay less than what the, the obligation. And therefore, could we make the film with another actor completely, start again? Okay. That wasn't going to be possible because... The dates we had for Christopher Plummer, for Lily, for Andrew, everybody involved were very, there was about a month leeway at the end. So at a certain point, unless we could complete the shooting within a month of the original end date, we were, the whole thing was gonna collapse. And so we then had to make decisions based on that, that if we could mount in what turned out to be, we couldn't get one actor to do that. So the idea of the three came and they were friends Oh. And so, and then we had to bargain their allotted time. Johnny Depp, for example, gave us two days, that's all, which was very tight. And in the end, he was ill for half of one of those days when he, in the dancing sequence, he'd been very ill that night. And we all had to just bl bluster through it. Colin was the one who gave us most time. He was free. Jude had a week or something. So it all became very practical about how we would get through and then... Terry rewrote, mm -hmm. we were employed to go into the cutting room by the insurance company to figure out with what I'd edited already, how we could make the rest of, the the film, rest of it. Because yeah. we indeed didn't have everything the other side of the mirror. If we'd had everything one side with, with Heath, then that conceit would have, would have been easier, but we didn't. And in fact, there's only one scene in there in the end where we had a screen test that Heath did costume tests, was trying things on. And I use that for when he, the scene that we can try where he's dressing 
and he puts the mask on mm. and there's the thing. We, oh, yes. But we, we also morally didn't want to misuse the material he'd given us. And so it was, it was complicated, but that's, that's how we wriggled out of it. And so Terry skillfully rewrote on the basis of what I'd cut and what we felt we could contrive. Mm -hmm. It was weird. <laughs> it was weird. Um, I think I'm going to open up to... Um, You've all been very quiet. Sure. And They're all quite... Please don't. <laughs> I feel, uh, you know, I, I'm... I'm uh, happy to hear don't feel you have to like the film because i'm here you can say whatever you like freely please yes this one <laughs> Come from your steambeck days yes um how did you find the transition going over to digital it was a bit scary to begin with because i never saw myself as somebody that sat in front of a computer in those days um the other in fact 12 monkeys the only other film i made with terry uh, we both tried to persuade in those days it was universal pictures i think to let us use one of the first lightworks systems yeah. on that thing and i had other friends who'd started with lightworks and i got i did a day on it and went home just sort of high as a kite you know i just thought this is the best thing ever Great. <laughs> I, I just I, I thought it was amazing i just couldn't believe it and also i'd got a terrible neck from winding film benches and all that and i thought at least i won't go home with you did know it take a long period though i mean was it years yeah or i months? found it difficult i found it difficult yeah. i found it difficult but the fact that you could suddenly work with multi-track sound, you could keep copies, there weren't any joins in it, you could make mm. a pretty good show out of what you've got in front of you. It was, it was breathtaking. I mean, it, it, was, it was a huge release. The only thing is it's very tiring sitting in front of a computer without any physical work to do. And the things that we used to consider as a moment to sort of digest what we've done was literally when you were rewinding a reel or something, people would wander around or go and have a cup of tea, you just press a button, it's at the beginning. So, oh, all right, we better carry on working. <laughs> it didn't give you any time, or the director would scoot it back to the front, you think, oh, I haven't even had time to go to the loo yet. <laughs> so on. So it was very different, it, and it still is very different. But I, I, people say, oh, did you miss it? Or have you missed it in these 10 years? Not for a moment, mm -hmm. no. I didn't like the image. I mean, the image is still rubbish, really, unless you've got high definition, but when uh, you know with the moviola like the one you've got upstairs mm. i mean the great thing about the moviola was that you know what the screens are like yeah. only two people can look down at a thing mm. and see the image so there was an editor and a director no producers could ever look at the damn thing so it was very private and they were scared of it because it was noisy and it kind of ripped the film and it kept everybody away that was good <laughs> nowadays you know they go home with dvds in their pockets and you can sit in the room and and it's all very accessible so that's more troublesome right. Thanks. Um, when you get the material in front of you, and uh, obviously there's you know so many scenarios that I'm, I'm not really looking for any specific answer, but what's your general theory on you know what motivates a cut? I mean, what to go between you know at your establishing shot, your, your uh, to a close up or to a medium shot? Uh, what's what, what's going through your mind when you're when you're deciding how to put the pieces together? I, again, because I come from an old school of, of kind of moviola cutting, um, I always used to mark up my own script. I don't know if you're familiar with that process, but it's a way of, of saying this is the cover. So you draw a line, you know, I'd, I'd run every shot, make notes on every take, 
and kind of figure out the performance pieces that I wanted vaguely on one viewing or two at the most. And say, well, I sort of know what I'm trying to say here. So you're constantly asking yourself questions. So you say, okay, traditionally we're going to start with a wide shot because we, we need to see that we're in a cinema with, with 125 people. And then you start to say, well, is that the story? You know, do I need that piece of information there or do I need it there? So you're constantly having a raging argument in your head as you make the choices about what's important. And if you have got the cover, sometimes you haven't. It says, that's it. And so you say, well, I'll just start the scene there. That's all I've got. So now I've only got to choose one of 25 takes, but it's going to be a wide shot, not a mid shot. But it's, it's knowing the story you want to make. And the... The trick is is trying to imagine what you want the audience to feel and what the information that's important at any given moment. Now, what's difficult is when we start cutting is, as I said earlier, you haven't got the pieces before it. So it's an informed guess. So if I'm not sure, maybe I would just say, okay, well, I'll put the wide shot in because I don't know better yet. But you start to get a feel for the story and that may be the important thing, it may not. So. It's really just challenging yourself all the time with what you've got and what you think the story is. And then I do try and do it as interestingly as I can, you know, if, it, if that's right for the story. It's hard because you're asking me a question which is, is so specific to each piece of film that it's hard for me to generalise. But all I can say is that there's a raging argument going on in my head, in, in my head all the time about... Is that a good choice? Is that a bad choice? Well, if I like that performance and it's only in that close-up, if that performance is telling me the story, which I think is important, I'm not going to worry about showing the wide shot yet. I haven't got it. I, wanted, I want that performance really badly because that expresses what I feel is right. So I'll go for that and then figure out how to get through the, through the route to make that work. But that's why I'm very keen on the whole screenplay thing because if you've got an opinion about the screenplay, then... That will narrows down your choices immediately, and if the director's been conscientious and given you what you need, you'll go for it. It's it, it's it's complicated, and I, and you get it wrong all the time. I can't tell you. There's this assumption that if you've made thirty films or whatever, that that that, that gives you the confidence to. Oh, there it is. It's not like that. It's a. Uh, it's a constant trying, and I'm horrified at what I make, you know, the next morning. I come back, and I think, well, that's awful. You know, I haven't got any of the... I have a memory of what's there, but I haven't, I haven't got it in yet. In a, so I go and do it again. And you keep reworking it until you feel you're honouring the material that you've been given and the intentions that you hope or believe are the movie you want to see. But believe you me, it's... <laughs> I, I sometimes, I, I would never show you any of these things in their early form, you know. They're laughable sometimes. <laughs> or they are to me. I just think, well, this is, this is rubbish. I haven't got this at all, you know. So, But you keep testing yourself and you just have to bluff your way through until you're happy. I don't show things until I'm pretty clear. Um, A, because I don't want to look like an idiot. But uh, you, it's just that you want other people to be confident in you and they don't need to see how many times you went around the houses first. <laughs> I mean, actually, with something like, um, I think with Parnassus, the, the issue for me was, and I'm dealing in this case with, uh, you know, Terry, who is Terry, and has written it. And that's a different relationship, again, than a director I'm working with who has taken on board a project. So I've got I've to walk my way through the writing issues as well. 
at some stage, either when we're shooting or not, um, and be, you know, I've got to be a bit more discreet because it's it's maybe two years' work of theirs mm-hmm. writing it, let alone getting it financed and then shot and all the rest of it. So that produces a different... They're a bit more delicate. Yeah. So <laughs> because with this film, I, I when we first screened it, I, I thought, well... The, the front is fine and we've got to do a lot of setting up here but the film only kicks off when Heath's foot comes out of the the next morning or I always thought or when you, they find him hanging and I thought how can I get to that earlier we've got all this stuff in a monastery and so on and I was I was less enthusiastic about that that backstory and the structure of that but I couldn't figure out how to deal with that in a different way and so I used to beat Terry up and say, look, come on, we've got to get rid of this monastery. But it was pretty hard to get rid of it. And in the end, he, he would say, no, I'm, you know, I'm happy with it. Don't worry, it'll be fine. But for me, that was, you know, it's his call in the end. I can just advise. I was never comfortable. I think the film took a little too long to get Heath in there. And then after his death, I, I just thought, well, what's it going to be like for an audience to sit there and wait for him to come? And their first image of him is this hanging. You know, it was, it was ghastly. I... We couldn't figure out the impact that would have on the on our audiences. I still don't know. You might be able to tell me, but it, we were we were profoundly upset by it because <laughs> we just shot it innocently. You know, it was all mm. it was just filmmaking. Got some people there there as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> More specific about uh, cutting, uh, take uh, dialogue cutting. Do you have any uh, conscious principles about where you put the cut between uh, one speaker and the, new, the next speaker? Yeah, um, there are no golden rules because it's based on performance. You know, if you've got a, a strong performance, your interest in what is being said and the way it's being said may work and may hold up. The way I try and think of it is, the wonderful thing about cinema is it can do two or three jobs at once. You can see one thing, you can hear something which might be sympathetic or contradictory to what you see, and that produces in your head a third idea or a third level. And so with dialogue, say, two people literally talking, perhaps in front of each other, or in a static situation, I'm always trying to think, what's the other level? How can I get the reactions? Or how can I make another context for what's going on? And so you're always trying to think, I've got enough of this. I can hear that going on. So now I can see something else. Because we all have this incredible ability to process visual and audio information (laughs) incredibly quickly. And it's getting quicker, Mm -hmm. actually, I think. So as soon as I think the job is done and I've got something going, then I'm trying to show another aspect of it. It may be something perfunctory. It may be that the the response is is merely static, but that's still telling you another level or a response to what's being said. You're you're talking about a a reaction shot or going up, staying on that person. I I was, uh, uh, that's a whole another area of beyond what I'm just just concerned about the simple one, which is most of of the dialogue cuts, and in this too, actually, most of the dialogue cuts are, in fact, between uh, one speaker and the other. You've got L edits and J edits in there, a few in there, but uh, and you've got reaction shots as well. But most of the cuts, like everybody's, are in the gap, actually, 
Did I do that? I hate that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hate that. I, I, think, I think if you check it, that's the way it I'm is. I'm not about a bad Every, day. But you know, everybody yeah. does. Well, everybody. no, I, I, well, they, there are sort of conventions, and they are to do with right. with with getting getting across at the moment where the idea is, is literally sort of like a dart flying from one person to the other. But no, you can cut in the middle of everything. I mean, the, the pleasure of it is you can do anything. But there are rhythms to do with speech sometimes which dictate those. It's really to do with what's important. It's really to do with what's important. I don't think one should apply those rules. It may be that you end up there, but, that's, but you've got to use another set of thinking to arrive at that point. Uh -huh. Because I remember this great pleasure very early on when I was working of thinking, well, I can just cut in the middle of words. And, and the minute I cut away, it means I can change the take. Um, and that was a great excitement to me that the minute you cut to something else you could swap the take so I would literally go halfway between a word if somebody fluffed a word and you liked the bit in front you could fuse it with another one while you're looking somewhere else so it gave you this fantastic release of the material and in fact I, a, a technique I've used a lot and I used it with Lily I had quite a lot of difficulty with Lily Cole who's not an experienced actress at all Mm -hmm. um, but I, I started to really take bits of one performance and put the words in her mouth and uh, just to make it do the job that I thought it needed to do. And, um, you know, I, I, that, was, that was a nice job to do, actually. It, it, it sort of made her come to life. So there are some people over there, uh, Alessandro and Alex. I've got a couple questions, if I may. Uh, first, I'd like to say I really enjoyed the film, and oh, there's one you. cut in particular that I just loved, which is in the end when uh, Lily uh, Cole and uh, Tom Waits are dancing, and it starts out with her trying to avoid him, and then those, her trying to go on one side and another side turns into this dance move, which right. I thought, which made me laugh. Right. Actually, the, the was, mirror uh, with the mirrors. And yes. Yeah. Um, um, just going back to what you're saying about Harry Potter and kind of painting yourself into a corner with the timing of it. Yeah. Um, how much for you is kind of the pleasure uh, of editing also the pain where you kind of come in in the morning and nothing's working and you've got to get your way out of it? Uh, are they kind of uh, inter intermingled as? Pleasure and pain. <laughs> as far as when it comes to editing. <laughs> yeah, I guess they are because, uh, I mean, I, I, the, the thing about this film is, is Terry is a sort of auteur filmmaker, which is quite unusual. And I don't, that word's a kind of complicated word, but you know, I, I, the wonderful thing about working for Terry is he, he can do all the jobs himself. He, you know, he could do my job standing on his head. And because he can do it, it's not a threat to him or, or indeed to me because he gets a great deal of pleasure of, of subcontracting, say the cutting of the film to me because he gets a kick out of seeing what you do because he he he, he loves filmmaking and you know it's and and so with the designing of that scene I could do a draft of it and then he'd say well I will draw you how I want these mirrors to go and we get excited about it and we kind of fire ideas off one another but I feel safe because I know he's in control and he's got this vision, that this, this hole down to the last frame in his head from day one. Now, that's not always the case with, with films, especially a visual effects film. But Terry, you know, because of who he is, that's what he can do. And so I always felt very secure because I know he was just going to kind of bat me back on the rails if I, got, if I got too far off track. And for example, and maybe you, you would agree or, or share my worry that the whole 
at the opening of the film when uh, the boy Martin, I think his name was, was drunk and shouting insults, and it takes him quite a long time to get onto the stage. And uh, that was pretty much how I first put it together. And I thought, well, I don't know, are we gonna, how, the, the editorial debate here is, is the unfolding of the story a little bit slower, more potent than getting him up into this world a bit quicker? And again, I, Terry would say, leave it alone. I love it. It's fine. It's don't, don't worry. And I would show him perhaps a shorter version and we'd decide, no, let's let the meter of the film be a little bit more measured. Whether they're right or wrong, that's the film we made. But I always felt very safe that he would, he would guide me or select it. Or, and when he committed something, he would absolutely back it all the way. He would never have second thoughts about it. He'd take it very seriously, look at it a lot, and then we'd screen the film and he'd say, no, leave it alone, I'm happy. It's doing the job I want it to do. Just that's, that's, the, that's the way it is. Okay, just one more question. Um, is it, how is it editing? Because I guess I, I quite love Terry Gilliam and I, I love 12 Monkeys, for example. But it seem, I think, like, characteristically, his, his movies have many different threads for many different characters yes. going off in many different directions, and that's kind of the, the pleasure of them. Yes. Is, uh, is, it a, is, is it at times maddening and, and difficult as an editor to try to steer all those winding threads through the beginning all the way to the end? Um, no, it's, it's exciting. I mean, it's exciting. It's not... We'd all agree with that, particularly with 12 Monkeys, for example, this isn't going to be easy. You know, this is going to be... This is going to be tough. <laughs> um, very early on, I knew that film was okay. I mean, very early on. I just thought it'll take us a long time to figure out how much information you deliver at one moment and how much you hold back until all the threads drop into place. But we sort of got our head around what the issues were going to be. And when I first screened the film, when we got back from shooting it, I, I, I knew I was, in, I was in striking distance. But I loved the whole thing. I mean, I just loved the whole... I, I knew about the film. Actually, the writers were friends of mine, so I knew I'd actually done, a, like, two years' work on it all before Terry even was asked to direct it. So I was I was desperate to make that film. But it it's the challenge, you know. I mean, if you just have a story which is ABC uh, and then this happened and then this happened and it doesn't challenge you in that way, you, you the, the pleasure of that starts to wear off after you've, you know, had the... F fun of crafting something like that um at the same time yeah it drives you mad <laughs> you know? um, i do what i call bedroom ceiling editing i go home and i'm tired and then suddenly i can't get rid of this thing that's going on. and you're lying in bed looking at the scene and the film is there and you, know, you can see it all happening you think well no that doesn't work so i've got to solve that problem and you can't sleep. And then the next morning you'll wake up and you'll think, oh, I know what to do. Okay, so I'll try that. And uh, yeah, they don't pay you to lie in bed and look at the ceiling, but it's been very productive for me. I sold one yesterday, actually, and I thought the old bedroom ceiling, in fact, we think you're moving <laughs> <Still> house. <working. laughs> I think you're moving house. So I thought, I wonder if that bedroom ceiling is going to be as productive in the next house. <laughs> Sorry, Alessandro, did you want to ask a question? Um, yeah, if um, changing from Terry Gilliam from Parnassus to Mike Newell to Prince of Persia. Anyway, from the film directors, your method in the, the number of uh, screenings that you organize with the directors, in uh, also the the director influence, uh, the presence of the director and the editing has changed uh, and in which way? Does it? It changes a lot. I mean, it's to do with the personalities. They all do it differently. Um, the only thing I think 
from my point of view, uh, and also because of my age and and you know my experience of growing up with with some of the filmmakers that I'm, you know, uh, I've worked with since the early '80s. That doesn't mean we the insecurities about what we're doing go away. They don't. In fact, I think they probably get worse because everybody assumes you know what you're doing. And in fact, you've got to reinvent each film from scratch with the issues you're talking about, you know, like with 12 Monkeys or so. Oh, this is, I have never done this before. And then there's time travel and then, oh, okay, how are we going to do all this? But so it's each personality comes at our contribution different, differently. I mean, I've worked uh, with directors who will literally sit next to you once they've finished shooting and go through every frame or say, oh, you know, I want to look at the rushes of that, I want to see that, or others who will be perfectly happy for just to give me very broad notes and say, I think I did something like that there, you know, will you have a look? And let me just go on producing it until they sign off. So it's down to the personalities. I mean, I'm sure the same as... You know, you're all filmmakers. I mean, it's as different for all of you. And if I was to be cutting a film for you, for example, I'm sure it would be different again. Um, it's it's about people rather than technique. But also, it depends also on the kind of movie. Yeah. I mean, if, I yeah. mean for example, for a high technical movie, yeah, uh, like the new ones that you have just edited, the Parnassus and Prince of Persia, uh, compared to other like uh, Danger Liaison. Yeah. Uh, i mean, if, when you have to deal with the uh, CG, uh, CGI effect, and uh, for example, the, the number of screenings, the, also the number of assistants that helps you, does it change yeah, the method? Yeah, we have of, different I mean, crews, yeah. 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 I mean, the, the film I'm on now, we're basically there's two of us. <laughs> there's me and an assistant, and we've had to work very hard to keep up with that because the finances are limited. Yeah. But, say, on the uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, I think... There was something like nine or ten in my department. Uh, yeah, all, all doing, I mean, great people doing all the individual aspects of the work. Although I was sort of editorial uh, chief, as it were, in terms of, you know, making the film that way, there's such a huge job that goes on to do with, if you think of each shot may have 20 or 30 elements on film that have all got to be narrowed down, edited and brought together and tracked and... It's huge, and uh, the, the, I was entirely reliant on, on uh, the, you know, my my crew around me. And I, 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 you know, I, I, my, my skills with the Avids, for example, which is the system we've adopted nowadays, is limited. I'm entirely reliant on my younger assistants to do uh, a lot of the the groundwork, preparing the material and all that. I don't get involved in that. I say how I want it laid out, but. They wouldn't want me to get involved in it because it's their job. <laughs> and um, I, I've just come from a school where I should have gone on a long training course and haven't. I like what I call Fisher-Price editing, you know, like a children's toy or either A shot, B shot, and it sticks it together. <laughs> That's what I liked about the Lightworks because it had these little sharks that used to yeah. take things. It was much more child-friendly. It had coloured numbers on it. <laughs> yeah, the screen used to be all different colours. It's so dull what we have now. It's like this pink colour. It all looks a bit sort of boring now but anyway they do the same job I don't care about the tools it's like all I need is something that sticks one thing to the next uh, this might be just uh, kind of trivial after all the other questions but uh, as an editor how does it feel to watch films especially in the cinema like 
when you were watching for, by, by other oh, filmmakers f- other f- filmmakers yeah. oh you know generally jealousy <laughs> <laughs> I like um, well I, I, I'm sort of I still just like to go to the cinema and watch a movie and not even think about how it's been made even um, if one's like particularly badly edited Oh, well, I don't. I don't really see it like that. I, 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 I hate to judge editing in that way. I, I go and see if a film works. Okay. You know, I mean, what's bad editing? I mean, it's like saying Jackson Pollock was a bad painter. You know, it's not true. It, uh, it's, it's where your mind is with, with how the film making leads you through the experience. So I, I don't really think of it. I mean, bad editing may be a film that bores you silly, you know, forever and ever, and you think. But at the same time, I would say, well, maybe I'm sure the editor wanted to get something out of that, or. I don't have a final say in this film. I have to go to my employers and my director to say we're happy. So I just see it as a film. Okay. You know, if it's really bad, of course, and you're bored, silly, you start to think about, you know, where you parked the car and if you left the iron on at home and things like that. You know, your mind wanders off, but that's the way it is. Any other questions? Plenty. Um, sorry. Yeah, no, uh, there's somebody in the middle there. Oh. Just quick, I, I'll get to you, Colin. I was just wondering, with the with the um, sudden death of Heath, when you were editing the entire movie, was there any pressure, not necessarily from the production, but on your own, yourself, to get the best performances that he gave from all the takes? Did well, you... we always try and do that, whether, you know, uh, anyway. But with Heath... It made it harder to be brutal on the material because we felt that we just wanted to preserve what he'd done because he was such a generous spirited man and was so positive I mean that's why it was such a shock his death was such a terrible shock to us so there's a scene in there where he's Andrew is mucking around with this little the, the tube which which mm. is the device which sort of saves them from hanging and I think technically if, if Heath had been al- alive we probably would have taken that scene down, but we kind of liked it. And, and again, it was one of those things where in the end Terry said, well, it plays a bit long, but let's leave it because we wanted to preserve Heath's performance. And that's a very unusual set of circumstances. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it's, the, you know, the film hasn't done well in America at all. I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's an out there movie. <laughs> I was just relieved we got it finished and I couldn't actually believe that we, we did. We had all kinds of other difficulties as well. So that does make the choice in performances, duration of performances and so on. But Heath gave us all good material. He was an actor where I could have picked up anything he did and it would work. You know, and absolutely spot on with all the technical stuff. I mean, something I really appreciate is um, the efficiency of the mechanics often in a performance. So I don't have to worry about whether... When he stands up, he stands up too quickly and his head goes out. You know, people like Heath or Chris Plummer is a wonderful actor. He would only do two or three takes. He would get bored and grumpy if he was asked to do another one. He got his whole performance sorted out. And his tech, you know, we want if, if uh, Nicola, the cameraman, needs him to stand on his mark and say the line without looking down, all that mechanical stuff we have to deal with is second nature to him. And you so admire those skills. Or annunciation. I mean, I'd never cut a Johnny Depp flick before so Johnny's performances in, in that day that he was they did a terribly long day but the work he started at half past eight in the morning matched what he did at 9.30 at that same night word perfect 
pitch of voice, everything, I could take any of it and jumble it all, and that's not always the case. In fact, Andrew Garfield, who's a wonderful actor, would go off on all kinds of riffs and do things and the, turn the <laughs> words around, you know, and I'd have, whoa, hold on, how am I going to make, make sense of this? And he's a wonderful, vibrant actor, but it was, a, it was hard work to, to make it all knit together correctly because he'd do it different every time. So they're, they're just different <laughs> facets of the job. Sorry, Caroline, I want to... It's quite complicated. When you are editing the scenes for CGI, yeah. how you judge is the best scenes, the best performance for take out the scene to send it to visual effects to be made? Because you told already you had problem with Harry Potter. You Bart. have to commit, yeah. There's a, there's, a horrible, there's a horrible phrase we have, which when they schedule out the work in post-production, which is turnovers. And the turnover means that we, the editors, have to commit the scene, the shots, the choices to within six or seven frames. And that then the money will be spent on developing that shot. The turnovers, uh, on the Harry Potter film, we would have turnovers every Friday. Mm -hmm. And there'd be a big meeting before the turnover to agree that this was going to be turned over, i.e. it was going to be locked up, locked, and I couldn't change it again after that. And uh, it makes me sick thinking about those Fridays, actually. <laughs> <laughs> But sometimes the turnover dates, because they'd booked, you know, 250 digital artists in a, in a house in London, and the shooting may have got delayed. So sometimes I may have only had a scene for two or three days, and I'd have to turn over the elements for it, which was scary. But how you charge it? This will work or this not work? Um, it's just an informed guess. You guess? You guess, yeah. And you have sleepless nights about it. Right. <laughs> and then the other thing is to just be very friendly with the visual effects supervisor and then take him out to the pub and bribe him if you get it wrong. So, <laughs> can I do this shot again? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, without any extra cost. Well, they're your closest friends because in the, in the case of the Potter film that Jimmy Mitchell was, the, was absolutely wonderful. He held my hand, you know, day after day. I mean, we'd walk around the set and he says, Mick, this, this is going to happen here. And you're just looking at fresh air. And I say, well, I can't, I can't see it yet. But he said, trust me, it's going to be fine. Yeah. Okay, so I'd block that out and try and imagine what was going to happen. And eventually we got there. But for that film, there were sequences which, you know, I started in week one mm -hmm. and I only saw made in week 70. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a long time. It was that the first film that you did with... Uh, that was the first one with really lots and lots of... Lots yeah. Of them, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, some people... I find it frustrating. I, I, I'd much rather deal with proper... Films. I like to see... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I asked because I had that problem. Oh, I yeah. make two short films, a lot of effects. Yeah. And I didn't like... Uh, and I didn't have choice. No. In the end, I didn't like the result either. No, no. It's, it's, it's I tough. asked the, your judgment. <laughs> well, it is tough, but at the same time, uh, in the case of that particular Potter film, the, my producers also were very understanding of the issue and the disciplines involved. And... Mm -hmm. If we'd invested a lot of money in one shot and they said, look, it should come out, we've already spent X thousand pounds on it, they said, take it out, don't worry, we'll stop work on it, chuck it. And so, because it's, it's holding, it's, for the bigger picture, it's not good. Okay. And they were very supportive of that. That's good. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, are there any films you'd 
recommend for honing your editing craft? I know, I mean, I get the impression you don't think, oh, that's a great film because it's great editing, it's the story, but yeah. are there any films? Well, it's difficult, that one. Is it? I mean, it's like sort of awards for editing. It's like how could, you'd only get an award if you'd seen all the rushes, you know, or the person <laughs> judging you. Because sometimes, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, you could... You could cut something well, but there wasn't any other choice. It's when you've fashioned a whole film and out of the tons and tons of material. Um, you know, on the Potter film, we had three million feet of film. We worked out that if we took the prints and laid them out, it could go all the way to Scotland and back again. You know, it was like 600 miles of film, <laughs> which we'd chopped out. Um, so, I don't know. It's is to do with selecting or manipulating what's available to you in the library that the directors give you. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's I, don't, I, I really don't look at films in that way and think it's well edited. I think, is the story told right? Are there, are there some editing? I mean, there are films that I adore for their editing per se. Uh, uh, you know, Bonnie and Clyde is still a giant of a film. I saw it recently, and not always because of things which go fast in it. Actually, I admired what went slow and was so powerful, and how there wasn't music. There was kind of like wind or dust or something. And you think, well, that's really a hard thing to get across mm -hmm. nowadays. That would be a tough call. People are terrified of silences in movies. They think the film's going to collapse onto the carpet. <laughs> no, you've got to put noise in. They're going to be bored. You know, they're only going to be bored if you told the story wrong or it's an uninteresting story. So that's what we're constantly dealing with as editors, to say, trying to evaluate you, your responses as an audience with what you've got. Sorry, this. Uh one more Is any of this making sense? <laughs> okay. You must tell me if I can be of any help, you know. Yes, go ahead. Oh, hello. I would like to make uh, some kind of more profound question about editing because I have, uh, from my very, very minor experience and from yours, that actually you cut every time uh, because of your feeling and how does it feel right to you so there are no rules. Uh, but because uh, also editing is somehow uh, when you put the images together and there is the sound or the sound yeah. design or the music and then this gives another totally different aspect. Yeah. So when these two elements that actually used 30, 40 years and maybe older to be part of the editing job and actually it is still part of the editing job, how do you handle this kind of situation? Either if you have control or the, on the sound design or the music, yeah. either if you don't have. So how do you control your feeling? You just yeah. again, yeah. like the visual effect? Yeah, you do. I mean, the great thing about the nonlinear editing process is, is this thing of, of building up a number of soundtracks on that side of it. Let's say dialogue and effects. Right from the word go, you can add that. So you can design and construct where key bits of sound information are gonna come and, and sort of map it out. That's great. In the old days, we had to use one track and then you get everything laid up and then you go to the dub and it would all be wrong and we'd have to start taking it to pieces again. But now you can do that as you go along. Similarly with the music, you can start to put music in or change it. What I like to do is to see a construction of the movie as naked as possible without any 
real thrills at all because if it will play like that, by the time you get more sound or atmospheres or things which make the the uh, the thing join up better or play better, um, if you see it without all those things and it works, you're, it's only going to get better from that point on. So don't put music on just to make it work because that's the only way. You've got to make the scene work first and then the music will supplement it. Or muck it up. You know, sometimes you put music on and you think, well, it feels... It's saying the wrong things now. I mean, uh, it, am I saying what I want to say? It just goes through smoothly because music has this wonderful, seductive mm -hmm. editor's friend, you know, oh, put music on it, everybody will love it. But sometimes they then get confused because they're not feeling the right thing. It, it appears to have got it right. So I prefer to see it like, I need to see the skeleton or the naked body before you start to dress it up because it's only going to get better. So the final Does that answer yeah, your almost. question? So the final decision, uh, if the music is going to be there or, yeah. or to be silent, it yeah. comes to you or to the sound designer, the final decision, because you may say... We all work together. We work together. I would map things out, but say with the composers will come in and we'll start to talk about, well, we think the music starts here and ends there. For example, in this film, um, Mike and Jeff Danner that wrote the score, two brothers... And we just had to do it. They were in Canada, we were in London. So we just had Skype calls to, with the film to say, discuss where we thought the music should go. And then they made demos on computers of, of basically where the music, and then once we'd all agreed and chopped them up and moved things around together, uh, either in either country, we never actually met until it was finished. Um, and then uh, they, they recorded it uh, with live orchestra in Budapest, I think it was, for cost reasons. So, but it was exactly how we planned it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's trial and error. <laughs> I'd like to take maybe another couple of questions and then we move to the bar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did you want Sounds to like a good idea. <laughs> I was just wondering about the uh, the story for the film we've just seen. And, uh, I mean, how, how much did you speak to Terry about the film before he actually started to script write? Did you, uh, were you involved from early on? Yeah, um, not before he wrote it. He gave me an early draft. And then he, to raise finance for the film, he drew the major part of the kind of design of it himself and used that he made a big it was a, we called it the bible it was a big book like this with his own personal illustrations of how the wagon would look wow. costume things how tom was going to look uh tom waits uh he'd done most of the basic sort of conceptual design as he was writing it and he took me through that we walked through it and he he also did some I think he shot some drawings of key sequences just as little like like Terry like drawings of of you know the sequence where they're, at the end they're climbing up the steps or something. So I had a pretty good idea of what what it was going to look like because he that's what Terry does. And then the script went through certain changes before we started shooting and there's always a bit of changing on on the day but then we had to completely rethink after his death. So we spent t two weeks in the cutting room figuring out this 
as I said earlier, this what was going to what we had to do with what we hadn't got this side of the mirror, right. and whether we'd get away with it, and how to rewrite certain scenes where Heath would have been in them, but he was off. So the device of putting him on the roof and all that was all post Heath's death. So the story must have changed quite a lot then between yeah. the original script and this. It did, but it did, but I don't know if it worked for you, but the question we could never figure out was whether the audience would go with these changing characters. You know, I just, I'd never done anything like that. Guy walks through a door and it's a different person coming out <laughs> the other side. But there were so many flukes. I mean, the thing of the mask, that was all written in the original draft. And it became then possible to Take switch. Yeah. I, I mean, it was sorry, extraordinary. No, sorry to interrupt. Does, does that mean that the one at the beginning, when you had the guy and he went through the mirror, the first guy... And fell in the mud. Yes. That was done... We, but was that done afterwards? Yeah. After he mm-hmm. yeah. to give the audience... <coughs> that was done afterwards, yeah. Right, OK, thank you. We felt we had to set it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, it seemed odd to me that, that he changed when he fell in the, yeah. in the pond, and I was never quite comfy with that. Because right. really, he should have changed the minute he went through. But, mm-hmm. but um, so that's when the, the so then Terry wrote all these devices where there was always the moment that they changed, and then their own response to it either as a sort of joke, you know, was my name's Barry or whatever. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, Who are you, darling? She says or something like that. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I, I thought it was a great moment. He played it beautifully. And um, so there was always a little bit of fun or looking in the water. So we felt we had to prepare the way. Mm. But that obviously all came post his death. I mean, Terry rewrote it within two weeks. Mm-hmm. One you. more question and then we move on. Anybody with more questions? If not, oh, there. Oh, yeah, I was wondering if you did. Oops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding <laughs> Could you please elaborate on what you were speaking about earlier in regards to looking at a script and yeah. how you sort of scrutinize a script from the point yeah. of view of an editor yeah. and also how that might change during the process of the shoot? Over the... Over the course of the shoot, how, how that might oh, yeah. change and okay, how yeah. a change in, in the script might affect that. Um, I used to be much more fastidious than I am now, perhaps, but I... Because of this arming yourself for a shoot or receiving material at a frighteningly swift rate, and you sort of get this kind of terrible indigestion after weeks of shooting where you, 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 you it's hard to take it all, absorb it all in the time that you're required to do a draft of each scene and clear it for the time being as regards shooting. In other words, there's a day where they say, they phone me up and say, Mick, we're striking the set tomorrow. Have you got everything you need? And you've still got the cast on the payroll. They want they want you to get out of there as quickly as possible. They the production wants assurance that I've got what I need. So I feel that enormous pressure to get that right, because you, nine times out of ten they're never going to go back and shoot it again. <laughs> it's just not possible. You know, dates and it's it's amazingly practical in that respect. I remember there was one occasion where a production manager phoned me up and said, um, "Are you happy with with that?" set you know we're, we're are you okay with the scene I knew the underlying thing was had you got everything and I said well no actually the, the it was damaged uh, in those days it was badly scratched I said no I think we're going to have to do that shot again because it's damaged uh, you, it's, yeah that's okay we've got the set haven't we she said no we took it down yesterday <laughs> so we had to go back 
and rebuild the set. Yeah, mm. just like that. But um, you know, those things don't happen very often. But uh, it, it, there's a pressure to clear the the the, the uh, to clear each day's work. And so my what I used to do was to hand write out a version of the script myself. In other words, like a we used to call them like a one line synopsis. So. Um, in the case of this film, you know, if it would be, you know, the wagon goes through the streets and stops outside a uh, a nightclub, and a boy, drunk kid from the thing, goes in and falls behind the mirror, I'd, I'd just write that out for myself rather than all the, you know, the pages from the screen. So I knew basically the beats of that piece, and also what the emotional goal of each bit was. What have I got to achieve? And I found that by writing it out, I sort of learnt the film for myself in a broken down version. And it, often it was very revealing because I'd find that sometimes in the middle act or something, thinking, well, this is going on a long time. You know, I've got to keep an eye on this because this is, this isn't, this is too fat. I need to get to that point of the story quicker. So I'd, I'd kind of make sure I had film to be able to do that if, if my instinct was right. In this case, you know, it would be, how do I get to Heath quicker? <laughs> um, there's something wrong here. There's a whole backstory about a guy in the past. He's telling the story to his daughter and so on. Hold on, is this going to work? And um, I don't know. You'll have to tell me whether it did or didn't. But uh, those would be the things which would be spinning around in my head at, from the screenplay and by writing it down by hand. So I had an absolutely clear understanding of what we were trying to make. So it's like a little notebook of the script, if you like. I found it very helpful. I've got lazier now. I don't do it so often. <laughs> okay, I think we're going to continue in the bar so we can have a drink. Yeah, and, yeah. So I mustn't stay too long. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.